This is episode number 24 with L. Scott Caldwell. Coming up. And I think the thing that, you know,、uh, worried people that were not of our generation at the time is that we could be hurt when it was time to renew the contract for the second year. They did not renew mine, they fired me. I was fired. And I had like a, what I would call a little mini breakdown. And I took to my bed for a couple of weeks. Something made me turn back. And I said to her, How do you know what I can do by looking at a piece of paper? He said, You know, you got to breathe to do this. And he said, If you weren't supposed to be here, sweetheart, you wouldn't be here. If you're looking for what it takes to be an actor long term over the course of your life, then you've come to the right place and you're going to really enjoy today's episode. Have you felt like you weren't really ready to work at a professional level? That perhaps you needed to study more? You needed more training before you could really work among the people you admire? Or that you felt like a fraud? That you weren't supposed to be where you are? That someone is going to find you out? Our guest today dealt with all of those feelings and soldiered on, ultimately winning a Tony Award and enjoying a long and varied career across theater, TV, and film. Hey there, my name is Nathan Agan, and this is The Working Actor's Journey, bringing you in depth conversations with actors that have been working professionally for decades. Hope you're doing well out there. We continue with season three, and if you're just joining us, there are over 20 episodes with fantastic actors you'll want to check out. These conversations are meant to inspire and reassure you on your journey that the road may be long and challenging, and that it is ultimately rewarding. Think of these guests like your personal acting mentors. You may not know it yet, but one of them could change your life. We have a new free guide to download. It's called 10 Ways to Stop Worrying and Start Working. Discover the Mindset of Working Actors. Inside this online guide are 10 specific ways you can stop worrying and start working when it comes to being an actor. Hear thoughts, ideas, and advice from those who have been acting 40 plus years, taken from excerpts from past episodes. These guests do not know everything, nor is everything easy for them. They just have been around long enough to have figured out a few things, and they are sharing this with you. Get your copy of the guide now at workingactorsjourney.com slash sign up. And there's also a link in the episode description and on the show notes. Today on the show is Tony winning actress L. Scott Caldwell. Scotty, as she is also known, has been a working actress for 40 plus years, from Chicago to New York to Los Angeles and many other places. In fact, right after we chatted, she was off to shoot episodes of Facebook's Sacred Lies, ABC's A Million Little Things, and HBO's Insecure. She stays busy. I'm also honored that she's now our second Tony winner on the podcast, following Reed Burney in episode 13. 
Scotty has over a hundred on-screen credits, including recurring characters on Lost, The Secret Life of the American Teenager, Southland, Queen Supreme, and PBS's original series, Mercy Street. She's also the second guest I spoke with from the hit movie The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. Scotty was part of Tommy Lee Jones' team and shared a scene in the film with our guest from episode 21, Richard Reilly. I first connected with Scotty about 10 years ago because of my involvement with Unite for Strength and the SAG after elections. Scotty has been a very active board and committee member over the years, and I'm glad I reached out to her all these years later. We have a wonderful conversation. So, in today's episode, Scotty and I cover her experience and awareness of the civil rights movement in Chicago, working on the play A Raisin in the Sun several times, the impact of watching very strong women on film, the personal rejection she experienced being fired and the breakdown she had, what she took from studying with Uta Hagen and the one item she uses consistently, and so much more. Scotty and I ended up talking mostly about her early years, leading up to her first film role, and it's such a fascinating journey, filled with excitement, doubt, challenges, and rewards. We did intend to chat more, but even though there was still so much left to talk about in her life, I'm really thrilled with everything we did cover. Even if there's never a part two, it's a great conversation about the life and beginnings of a working actor. Now, if you're enjoying these episodes, I want to let you know you can also become a premium member of the show, and there are a number of different perks, including bonus episodes, exclusive opportunities, and more. Members can hear additional conversations with past guests Robert Pine, Don Didwick, Richard Reilly, and Tony winner Reed Burney. Head over to workingactorsjourney.com slash premium to find out more and become a member. A special shout-out to those at the co-star level or higher. Adam, Jeff, Robert, Ken, and Ralph. Thrilled that you all are members. So here's a bit more about Scotty's journey. She grew up on the south side of Chicago, attending local elementary and high schools, joining a drama club, and that's when she first saw the Negro Ensemble Company, a group she would later join. She attended Northwestern University and then Loyola University, earning degrees in theater and communications, and her teaching certificate. Her Broadway credits include Proposals, A Month of Sundays, and Home. She has also appeared off-Broadway in About Heaven and Earth, Colored People's Time, Old Phantoms, and A Season to Unravel. Her TV credits include roles on Judging Amy, Jag, Chicago Hope, The Practice, The Pretender, ER, and L.A. Law. She's also starred in numerous films, including Mystery Alaska, Dutch, one of my personal favorites, and Waiting to Exhale. Scotty won Broadway's Tony Award as Best Actress for August Wilson's Joe Turner's Come and Gone. She was awarded the Drama Log Award for her work in Proposals, an Obie Award for her performance in Going to St. Ives, and the L.A. Drama Critics Circle Award for lead performance as Lena Younger in A Raisin in the Sun. She recently returned to August Wilson's work on stage in Gem of the Ocean at South Coast Rep in California. 
I'm very grateful that amidst her busy schedule as a working actor, I was able to chat with Scotty. And I hope you enjoy this one. So here we go with episode number 24. Please enjoy my chat with L. Scott Caldwell. Yeah, this was actually uh, my first pet. I never even had a goldfish. Really? So, uh, yeah, so it was quite a uh, a learning curve. (laughs) And, uh, you know, unfortunately, every single person that you talk to has a different take on how to handle even the, uh, the smallest part of mm-hmm. uh, having a, a new pet. So I got a lot of information, uh, tried to take all advice, and, and um, that was detrimental to my dog uh, <laughs> because the first thing that happened is he he gained a lot of weight. So he's oh. been on a diet since I've had him. Okay. And I remember the first time we were walking down the street and uh, saw another beagle uh, coming up the street. That beagle's belly was touching the sidewalk, and I kind of, you know, to the side said to my dog, now you don't want to find yourself in that position ever. Exactly, exactly. And, yeah, but it was like I was just laughing about it, and uh, about a year later, my dog was so overweight that he had to be put on a uh, special diet. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's had a lot of health issues, a few surgeries, and a big one last uh, September for uh, cancer. And... uh, was in the hospital for 21 days and uh, took, you know, all this year to uh, recover because uh, the wounds eventually had to close on their own uh, because the uh, flap surgery, as they call it, did not work. Um, So it was a very, very big process. And that also affects uh, work that I was able to take and not take because I, you know, just I couldn't, I, there was nobody to take care of the dog. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the only thing that I could do, which is something I did, I came down to San Diego to do a reading of uh, Charlene Woodard's uh, new play in um, I guess it was uh, September, October, October. And I had to put him back in the hospital for the few days I was going to be down there because there's not a daycare or, you know, a service like that will take care of a dog that has uh, medical issues. Sure, yeah. So it's been uh, quite a challenge um, because I have had to, you know, just turn work down. Mm-hmm, yeah. Speaking of, of travel and, and, and all that, I wanted to start in Chicago. This is uh, another place I've, I've lived. And actually, as I did some research, I was like, wow, we're, we were kind of in the same area many decades apart. But you grew up uh, in the south side of Chicago, correct? Correct. Yeah. So uh, I was, Lawn, uh, yeah. was the predominant uh, area that I grew up with, Woodlawn. Right. And, and, you know, at least looking at maps that it seems to border the south side of the University of Chicago campus that it kind of, you know, it, it stretches a little Correct. bit even further south. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Correct. for a year. In I, fact, I went to the, I attended the, uh, I, w- I went to Hyde Park High School, that's uh, where I graduated from, and I was in a program at the University of Chicago 
uh, that was called Upward Bound. So I took uh, some classes at the University of Chicago in preparation for college. Oh, cool. And so that's like that Hyde Park High School, is that what the lab high school became? Like, is that, did it become the lab high school? I know it's like a very... I think it, uh, yeah, I think it eventually did. But when I I went there, uh, just before I graduated, I think maybe in 65, 66, Mm -hmm. uh, they built another high school in the Hyde Park area called uh, Kenwood. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Right on 51st. Yeah. Right, and all of the white kids at, uh, the white and the Asian kids at Hyde Park High School started going to Kenwood. Oh, interesting. Wow. So then, yeah, so at a point, uh, Hyde Park High School became predominantly black. I mean, there was still some, you know, uh, Asian and white kids, but the largest majority of them that were already living in Hyde Park, the area, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, transferred over to uh, Kenwood. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I um, When my fiance was going to medical school at UChicago, um, she finished up last spring. You know, we lived in Hyde Park and for a year in the Woodlawn neighborhood. So, And it was just, it was such a fascinating place to live because you had such a mix of cultures and, you know, economic uh, divides between, you know, with such, you know, you had such wealthy individuals living near such, you know, people without resources or means, and yet they'd all converge at the grocery store or the library. I mean, it was just such a fascinating mix, you know, living in the South Side. And, you know, of course, most people think of Chicago like the loop and north, uh, you know, of like where, you know, you go to do, you know, do everything, but there's just still so much going on on the south side. And it was, it was really fun to live in that area for, for a few years. Well, that's interesting because, uh, you know, as esteemed as the University of Chicago is, it follows the pattern of uh, most wealthy universities in inner cities. They're, you know, part of the gentrification of right. the area. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it um right and it, and it, it you know it has I'm I mean I'm sure uh, even more so you know now but uh, yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of money you can tell there's a lot of money and development going into you know specifically the Hyde Park neighborhood um, that is I'm sure really changing things and is definitely going to be driving up rents and yeah just really changing the the makeup of that area and it'll be interesting to see how that kind of expands beyond the like how how much that bubble expands beyond Hyde Park but it's always been that way as long as i can uh remember because the university of chicago's been there uh mm-hmm. you know for a sure. century so right, right. uh and they've been you know <sighs> Like as I say, like most universities, like Yale University, you know, yeah. you're in where that's located. You're in basically the pink light district, so to speak. Right. Uh, but there's always that poverty bordering these very, very wealthy institutions, you know, and uh, and a lot of people don't really realize that what it's ultimately about is the land grab. You know, they own so much real estate that you wouldn't even imagine that they own. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, there's that. But uh, I was happy to be a part of the 
program that I was part of, mm-hmm. and it gave me uh, exposure to, uh, you know, things that I wouldn't have been exposed to. So I was grateful for the time that, uh, you know, I was there, but still very aware that uh, that was um in those days just their attempt at uh well you might call it diversification so right. to speak and yep. uh quotas and all of that were uh the, the you know that was the the name of the game at that point right. and uh of course liberal universities always want to be uh you know at the forefront of those conversations so you know, uh, it's interesting to be aware and still be grateful to be part of something. But I was very aware of uh, what all that, you know, was. Mm. Well, yeah, there's a there's a couple things I'm I'm really interested to talk about. You know, specifically about the the South Side of Chicago or, or just your experience in Chicago. You know, growing up, because you know I'm always fascinated with. You know, particularly, I mean, I guess you could probably pick a lot of decades in the U.S. as, you know, just having a lot of things going on. But, you know, I, I look back at the 60s as such a turbulent time. Um, and, and of course, I think about, okay, you know, you were in high school and graduating around the time that, you know, uh, of course, well, you know, Kennedy was shot in 63 and then Martin Luther King and then Robert Kennedy in 68 and then even the the riots outside the Democratic National Convention. And you know, that was in 68 as well, I believe. Um, yes. And so, you know, how how much were you aware? I mean, and, and I know Martin Luther King had, I think, his his headquarters for, you know, what he was doing was in Chicago as well. Um, or part of the work he was doing was was headquartered in Chicago. So, uh, you know, how aware were you of, you know, all this tension and strife going on in the country, you know, being in the south side of Chicago? Uh, very aware. Uh, you know, uh, as in, you know, most uh, cities, not just Chicago, there was an awakening uh, during the 60s for black people, that was, you know, when the terminology or the phrase, uh, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, came mm-hmm. uh, into vogue with James Brown. That was one of his right. uh, big hits. And uh, the Black Panthers were, uh, you know, coming into uh, into view. Uh, there was all kinds of things going on that related to black people. Um, and I was fortunate in that at Hyde Park High School, it was a, uh, a high school that attracted a lot of very fine educators at the time. And one of those uh, was uh, um, a history professor named uh, Dr. Timuel Black, who was an activist at the time. So mm. he was, if you took his history class, you were very much aware of all the things that were going on and the things that, you know, a young black minds should be paying attention to. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, and as as a matter of fact, when I was in high school, I started to wear my hair in an afro. Hmm. Uh, 
that was a big thing for uh, young black women uh, to suddenly be wearing afros. And uh, that was a what would be considered a political choice sure. at the time. And and so, well, and I'm I'm curious, you know, were your parents supportive of the the politics of the day of the movement, uh, you know, or or was there were there clashes between the generations that way? I wouldn't say there were clashes uh, uh, with the generations. At that point, my uh, parents were uh, divorced, so I was uh, in what you would call a single parent household at the time, mm-hmm. but my mother definitely did not agree with me changing my hair <laughs> because I had what they used to laughingly call good hair. Okay. And to suddenly be making the choice to wear it with what they call nappy, uh, she didn't agree with that as a choice. Okay. Uh, but that's interesting because about 10 years later, I have a picture of my mother with a big afro. So <laughs> she, she, you know... Uh, she came came into the knowledge that yes, this natural hair is beautiful, but at the time, no. Right. Uh, and I think the thing that you know uh, worried people that were not of our generation at the time is that we could be hurt. Mm, sure. Because. Uh, you know, uh, one of the big events that happened in Chicago uh, around that time was the assassination of Fred Hampton from the Black Panthers. And I was kind of tangentially involved with that group. But at the time, it was um, from the Aspect, and this was from meeting some people at the University of Chicago that were political, you know, like young young white kids that were students at the University of Chicago, uh, made me aware of the breakfast program that the Black Panthers had. So I kind of got involved with them for a moment, but when they started to be uh, brought into focus and attacked. Uh, for their desire to be in a defensive mode, my mother was afraid that I could be hurt. You could get yourself hurt or killed if you fool around with these groups that are targets because they were definitely targets. Um, So, you know, there was was that uh, because the police literally... um, busted into their home uh, in the middle of the night and, you know, killed a number of uh, Black Panthers. Wow. You know, and that's a very uh, seminal event. Mm -hmm. But there were things like that happening all across the country. It was not just Chicago. It was just like an awakening pretty much like what I'm experiencing with young people now and the Black Lives Matter movement. It feels Mm -hmm. very much like that. It resonates for me in that way because it was young people at the forefront of that that struggle, and uh, they were the ones that were standing up saying, no more, we're not going to take this. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, another, you know, um, uh, event, I guess I'll call it, that I want to talk about is, and, and person specifically, 
um, is Lorraine Hansberry, who, you know, if, if you drive around, uh, you know, Hyde Park and Woodlawn, you can even see murals of her, uh, in the area. But, you know, she wrote the play A Raisin in the Sun, which takes place, you know, she doesn't, I don't think, name Woodlawn in the play, but that's the area it, I believe it's supposed to be representative of. Um, and as I was doing some research, I saw that you, uh, did the play a couple different times, but also it, it, it sounded like you had also done it in high school as well. Yes. Uh huh. So I, you know, I, I often tell people I played every, uh, role that could be played in a raisin and a son, including Travis, the little boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I played in high school. I was Travis. And, okay, so, uh, and then you, did, yeah, and then you did it. Um, I played Ruth. Yeah. Uh, and a production at Arena Stage. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so I did Ruth in that production, and then out here, meaning uh, Los Angeles, I did mm-hmm. a production at the Ebony Rep Theater where I played uh, Mama. Okay. And, I mean, would you say, was that the most personal work you've ever done? I mean, were those people you felt like you knew? Like, did it... Did it you know, ring like I grew up with these people? Did it feel like that to you working on the play at any of those times? Uh, yes, uh, because um, the way the household was set up in the building that the younger family lived in and within the world of Raisin in the Sun, I grew up in a building like that where we, our family shared a bathroom with two other families on the same floor hmm. and you had to take turns sure. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. going to the bathroom and using the bathroom and the facilities and all of that. So that was uh, very familiar. And did you know any families or was there ever talk of other families wanting to do what the youngers did of move into a, a different neighborhood or, you know, try to you know, oh, that's get a better... always that was, you know, the the, the idea of being upwardly uh, mobile is uh, just an innate instinctual uh a kind of thing that happens to people, period. Everybody in the world, this has nothing to do with black people, everybody in the world aspires to have more for the next generation. Uh, You know, so it's, it's, it's not unusual to be striving to have more and to, uh, make sure opportunities exist for your children. And so the fact that people find that so unusual is bizarre to me because that's just a natural human instinct. Mm. And, it, and it must have been really interesting, I mean, particularly with the characters of, of Ruth and then Mama, just to, for you also, like, as, you know, as you grew older, to have different perspectives and life experience to play those different characters and probably see life and maybe the world a little differently. Um, that must have just been really interesting to come back to the play so many times. Um, did you feel like you kept learning new things about the characters in the play each time you worked on it? Um, you know, I think that 
Uh, that happens in any place, so I wouldn't want to isolate, uh, you know, that particular uh, thing around a raisin and sun because if you repeat it any play, sure. you're going to learn something new because you're uh, more than likely going to be working with a different team of people, and people have a everybody's going to have a different frame of reference and a different point of view. So everybody's bringing uh, their living, breathing selves to the theatrical experience. And so there's that. So Mm -hmm. that's always going to be the case. But the short answer to was I, uh, you know, in a space where I was available to uh, see things differently than I did the first time I actually uh, uh, had the experience of doing a raisin in the sun is uh, yes, because that's a, that, that is what happens with sure. any play. Right. Okay. Well, all right. So I wanted, um, you know, get to you, you know, you graduated from Hyde Park high school and then you first went to Northwestern, but you didn't stay there long. What was the decision to to leave Northwestern and what was going on in your life at that point? Well, um, to backtrack a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, going back to the program that I was involved with, Upward Bound at the University of Chicago, right. yeah. uh, one of the things that uh, was available to people that was in that group is uh, we would get taken to uh, different universities across the country uh, to sort of see what they were about and if we were interested in going to uh, that school for whatever reason. And oh, wow. the school that I selected that I was one of the schools that I was selected to uh, attend was University of Wisconsin at Madison. And mm-hmm. I chose that school because uh, another friend of mine who was also in the program had picked that as the spot that she wanted to go to. Okay. Uh, but it turned out um, they did not offer me a full ride. And... Um, so whatever the difference was that needed to be made up, uh, my mother did not have it, and mm-hmm. we didn't have means to raise any more money. So uh, it became obvious to me that I was not going to be able to go, you know, to my dream school for economic reasons. Mm. Uh, but it didn't dampen my spirit too much because I had... Uh, I guess, like accelerated in high school. So I was 16, you know, when I was a senior, I was 16 years old. So I had time to figure it out. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, what I'll do is I'll just, you know, I'll get a job and, you know, then I'll decide, you know, what I'm going to do next or how I'm going to do next by getting the job and saving money and all of that. And so by the time um, I was getting around to, okay, now what do I do if I stay in Chicago? One of the schools that uh, had also been on my radar was Northwestern. So I had, you know, uh, gotten a, was able to go back in and get a provisional acceptance there. 
uh, without declaring a major or anything like that. So it's just taking classes, mm-hmm. uh, core classes. So um, it was very difficult to get there. I was taking uh, a couple of classes uh, at the Evanston campus, and then they also had a campus you know, downtown uh, near North right. and taking yeah. some classes there. So uh, it was pretty difficult getting around. I didn't drive then. And uh, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do yet. I, I wasn't really thinking theater at that mm-hmm. point. Okay. That was not the reason that I was thinking about it. But uh, while I was there, I met the uh, the chair of the department, uh, theater department at Northwestern, Les Hendricks. And uh, I'm not sure how that happened, but I think because I was also, you know, doing community theater, any, anything you could do related to it as a hobby I was doing. And I think he, you know, came to a performance of a, there was a uh, black theater group called Kumba, uh, Belgrade Ward's theater group. Hmm, okay. And uh, so I met him and, you know, was made aware that he was the chair of the department. And, you know, uh, I said, well, I might be interested in, you know, getting into theater, uh, maybe taking some acting classes. And he, you know, said that, you know, I could take his acting class. So that's what kind of started it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but I was also interested in uh, communications because I was always told that I had a nice speaking voice and that I should explore that. Uh, so I took some classes in uh, the communications department as, as well. And um, at some point, I also went to the Midwestern School of Broadcasting, which I said, you know, maybe that's what I'll do is I'll try to go for being a uh, a disc jockey because we had a, a station in Chicago, I think it was WSDM, and it was all um, women oh, okay. that played jazz that night, and I, I could see myself or hear myself as being one of those women. So I went to the Midwestern School of Broadcasting, and that was just like a um, a program that was like a nine-month program, and, you know, I uh, learned to do what you do to be a disc jockey, and I, you know, got my uh, uh, FCC third-grade license oh, thing. Really? and mm-hmm, Yeah, I did all of that, and... Um, thought that maybe that was the direction I would go. So I was just like trying things at that point. And um, somewhere in there, you know, I met, you know, the guy that I would eventually get married to. And he had been taking classes at Northwestern, but he was in the um, business department. And I found myself even taking accounting classes there. And it's like, oh, boy, what am I doing? (laughs) Uh, But I got, you know, I got married and uh, had a baby and sort of stepped away from the education piece of it for a minute. And uh, then when I decided, you know what, I'm going to just get real serious and get my degree. 
because by then, everybody that I had went to high school with had already graduated from college. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I'd just been putzing around. So I said, okay, I'm about to get serious. And so uh, I had 30 credits from Northwestern by then, and I transferred those to Loyola University because I had a friend that was in the theater program there. And she said, it's pretty, it's pretty terrific. She said, I think you'll like it. And I said, okay. So I transferred my 30 credits from Northwestern to Loyola University, and there I majored in theater. I double majored theater, communication arts, and I got a teaching certificate. Oh, wow. You were, uh, With, you were keeping yourself pretty busy then. Well, I was had the idea that I was going to teach because when I was a kid, that's always what I thought I might wind up doing is teaching because... One of the games we played when I was a kid was school, you know, and I okay. would always make sure I was the teacher because hmm. I would be in the front of the room, you know, with all the other kids in the neighborhood and I would be the one, you know, telling everybody what to do and so on and so forth. And I was pretty good at it because I, you know, was an avid reader. I won spelling bees and all that. So I was, you know, I would call myself like a a smart kid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was always the teacher in these pretend games that, you know, we would play. And so I thought that meant that I wanted to be a teacher and what I would later kind of like discover is I liked pretending to be Mm. a teacher. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was finally able to make the connection that I liked pretending and I liked escaping the life I was in. Uh, As I said, I was an avid reader at, you know, Emily Dickinson, her poem, there is no frigate like a book to take you near and far. And that was sort of like my escape from my uh, my life in the inner city is sure. books. And my favorite was Pride and Prejudice. Uh, really? And yeah, that that was the world I lived in. Mr. Hmm. Darcy was my boyfriend. <laughs> That's great. So imagine that kind of imagination. It was yeah. as far away from my real life as I could possibly be. So it was that pretending and using your imagination to pretend that was always there, but I didn't recognize it as being the thing that it was, although I was in the high school drama uh, club, uh, which would eventually point to something uh, important in my life, an event that would later, you know, lead me to one of the most important events in my life. Um, I knew I liked to act, but Mm -hmm. I never thought of it as a way you could make your living. Um, Because also when I was a kid, um, you know, in segregated Chicago at one point, the schools were so overcrowded that you went in shifts and 
at a certain period of my life, I might have been like eight or nine, I went in the morning shifts and my uh, sister's sister and my brothers went in the afternoon and the morning. So there was no place for me to go in the afternoon because my mother worked. So, um, you know, I got dropped off at the uh, Lex movie theater on 63rd Street. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. To sit there and, you know, wait to get picked up in the uh, afternoon by my sisters and brothers. And um, there was a, a lady that, you know, cleaned there that, uh, you know, I think she lived in our building or my mother knew her some kind of way. Mm -hmm. It didn't go on for a long time, but it was um, uh, some months that this, was the arrangement that I would get dropped off and get picked up later. Right. Wow. And uh, so I watched movies. Sure. Yeah, whatever yeah. was on the screen. And, but that's when I became aware of, you know, like uh, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and Loretta course, Young. Yeah. And the only black people that you saw on the screen in these movies were the women that played the maids. And right. Yeah. Patty McDaniels and yep. Louise Beavers yep. were the, you know, the, the two. They were in all the movies. Right. Right. These two black women. But to me, they were invisible. Hmm. I only had eyes for Betty Davis and what she was doing. And, and these, you know, remembering that Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and, uh, you know, other women like that, Barbara Stanwyck, were playing very strong women. Right. Oh, yeah. They had roles where they were, you know, large and in charge. And I got fascinated by that. Mm. And I thought some kind of way... If you did that work that you were in charge or something, you know, it was all mixed up in, in my head, but I didn't see it as anything I could do because the invisible people that look like me didn't register. Mm, wow. So I didn't see myself being able to be an actor because that was my you know, awareness of acting, what I saw right, those right. women doing. So it would be, you know, uh, the year that I graduated, as a matter of fact, my high school drama teacher, Mr. Leslie Jones, uh, took the class to a production in Hyde Park at the Hyde Park Theater of A Day of Absence, written by Douglas Turner Ward mm -hmm. and directed by him. And the Negro Ensemble Company is who performed this production, okay? Sure, yeah. That was the first time I ever saw black people on the stage. And that's when something started to churn in my head a little bit, like, okay... Black people can do this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Was this was this the event that you were alluding to that that changed your life? 
you know, through the high in school. In a way, because yeah. it would be in 1978 when I would finally get to New York right. and have the opportunity to audition for the Negro Ensemble Company for Mr. Douglas Turner Ward himself. Yeah. That those dots were connected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was the decision to go to New York? Because I knew, or at least I read that, you know, you were interested in auditioning for HB Studios and then, you know, the Negro Ensemble Company, you know, was also something that you could audition for. But what was the, I mean, because Chicago, you know, there's certainly a lot of theater going on there, but what was the decision to go to New York? Uh, well, there was an, uh, a lot of theater going on in Chicago, and especially not oh, okay. black people. Not that's, okay, black yeah, people. that's a good point. That's okay, good point. so you had, you know, Steppenwolf and uh, Wisdom Bridge and uh, St. Nicholas. Uh, right. right. Uh, so there were a number of theater companies, but they were, you know, for white folks. Yeah. No, okay. I, Even I, the yeah. Goodman, as a matter of fact, if you ever got cast in anything at the Goodman, that was like, and you were a black person, good luck with that. Because I was <laughs> cast uh, by Gregory Mosier, was the casting director of a play called Benito Sereno. And I got cast to be one of the slaves in that, but I couldn't do it because I was you know, in the process of trying to uh, graduate from Loyola, so I couldn't take mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. job. But that was a big, a big event that a show that was going to actually cast black people that lived in Chicago right. would happen because what goes on, and it still goes on today, is if you're a native, they're always going to uh, put you on the back burner list. Uh, they bring people in from out of town to do production. So it's very difficult to get an opportunity mm-hmm. to uh, be cast at, you know, a, a major theater in Chicago. Uh, and as I said, I was, uh, you know, bumping around the city doing all kinds of uh uh, things that I could do with different theater groups. There was one called X Bag. Uh, I did uh, some productions there. Uh, I was involved with um, the Chicago Black Theater. Uh, and at some point, I was hired to be an artist in residence. I think that was maybe after I graduated. Uh, so that was. Just before the year, maybe 76, I was a, a member of the Chicago Arts Council's Artist-in-Residence program, and they hired um, actors, they hired dancers, they hired visual artists, uh, musicians, uh, filmmakers to work for the city, and we would do shows, create shows and programming for, um, uh, it could be the prisons, it could be for uh, hospitals, it could be for nursing homes, uh, anything that was related to uh, uh, the city that was funded by the city. Um, we would provide programming 
for those uh, different outlets. Uh, so that was an interesting year, and I probably maybe would have gone on and continued with that, but I was fired oh. uh, when it was time to renew the contract for the second year. They did not renew mine. They fired me. I was fired. <laughs> uh, was it very clear to you why you had been fired? or uh... No, not really. I mean, oh, okay. I knew that I was... Um, I won't say I was considered a, um, I, I was outspoken. Sure. So if I, I saw an injustice, I spoke on it, and usually it was on somebody else's behalf. So I've always had like a loud mouth in, you know, okay, that regard. Yeah. Uh, but I got on somebody's radar, and this was a political job, by the way. Okay. All right. Uh, and uh, so I got on somebody's radar, and I wasn't really aware because that you had to schmooze and you know mm -hmm. kiss somebody sure, behind sure. to yep. you know keep your job or whatever. Uh, but when it was time to renew, they invited all the artists in, and you had like a a time where you were supposed to go in front of the. Um, the panel, uh, the review panel, and um, let's say my time was 7.15, and I went in and had my interview, and it went just fine, and they said, oh, well, we're, you know, glad that you had a, a terrific time, and by all accounts, you were really uh, very good in the program and, uh, you made quite a difference and so on and so forth. And I said, thank you. And I left. And this, by the way, was three, three guys. One was the artistic director of, uh, Wisdom Bridge. One was the artistic director of the St. Nicholas. And one was the artistic director of the body politic because, those theater artists were the directors mm -hmm. in the programs. They directed okay. the plays or wrote the plays or, or whatever. So this was the panel of people that uh, was kind of uh, overseeing the process. So I left, and by the time I got home, the phone was ringing. They said, oh, you need to come back because uh, – we made a mistake and uh, we need to see you again. So my mother drove me back downtown to the interview and uh, I said, okay, I keep the motor running. I guess they forgot to give me my flowers or whatever uh, or my special award. I yep, said, yep. well, I'll be right back down. <laughs> okay. And I go back in and they say, well, we, you know, beg your pardon, but we had the wrong file in front of us, and now we have your file, and we understand that uh, you were not a team player uh, within the program and, you know, some other things like that, and they said, so we will not be able to offer you a contract for the uh, coming year. I was hmm. stunned because hmm. it's like, really? Really? And uh, in my attitude of being stunned, I was able to say, well, you know what? I may not work here next year, but I will be working 
somewhere, mm-hmm. even if I have to go to the moon. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I got up, you know, in an attitude and I marched out of there. But, you know, when I got down to the car, I was crying because I was so devastated that I was not being invited back. Right. Yeah, of course. So that was like, uh, you know, a first taste of uh, uh, real rejection, not the the kind they talk about in the business where, you know, you're not really being rejected when they say they went another way. Right. No, this, right. this was the real thing. They're saying, we don't want you to come back. Right. You are not welcome to come back. That was devastating. Mm. And I had like a, what I would call a little mini breakdown. And, uh, you know, was I took to, to my bed for uh, a couple of weeks. And from my bed, I'm watching television. I think it was the Mike Douglas show. I see Uta Hagen on the Mike Douglas show being interviewed about a movie she'd done called the other. Hmm. And I had seen the movie. So I was so fascinated that here's this lady that was so wonderful in that movie. And now she's on the Mike Douglas show talking about, her experience of the movie and her career and that she, you know, had a school in New York called HB studios that she ran with her husband and Mm -hmm. that she, you know, had played Desdemona to Paul Robeson's Othello. And it was like, Oh my God, I was just fascinated Mm. by this woman because she was just so transcendent in that movie. And there she was talking about the fact that she had a school where she taught young actors. Right, yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, if I could get to New York to study with her, oh, oh, my goodness, if I could just get there. And so I started to hatch this plan. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but that's what was in my head. I got to get to New York. I have to audition for her. I have to get into her class. Mm. So it took me uh, another six or seven months to kind of figure out how I would do it. And as I said, I was married at the time. So I said, you know, to my husband, I would like to go to New York to try for this. And, you know, he said, I think we, if you get in, I think we can work it out. You know, even though I had a, uh, a five, my son was five years old by then. Mm-hmm. I think we can work it out because he worked for legal services. He was back and forth in New York. And he said, I think we can, you know, make it work. How long is the class if you get in? And right. I said, oh, it's 16 weeks. He said, okay. He said, yeah, we might be able to, you know, uh, figure that out. So I went to New York. I had a girlfriend that was uh, studying medicine, and she was at Harlem Hospital, and she lived in the interns' quarters. Oh, okay. So she got me in there, you know, because I was only going to be there for a few days, and she said, you know, they won't even know you're here. You can stay (laughs) here and, uh, you know, do your audition, and, you know, and so, yeah, that's 
what I did. I went there, was at Harlem Hospital. I had uh, scheduled my audition for Uta Hagen, but I, what I did not know is that the first round was not Uta. It was one of her proctors that would, you know, uh, select people to move on to the next Sure, level. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that. So I was there longer than I thought I was going to be because I had to wait another week to, I moved to the, from the first uh, step and was told you come back uh, in one week and you mm. audition for uh, Uda. And so I, you know, uh, did that and um, was prepared to do it, by the way, because when I graduated um, from Loyola, I was um, preparing for the, you know, the TCGs, and Mm -hmm. you had to, you know, do a classical and a contemporary piece, and so I was already, I already had that material ready. Got it. So, because I'd already performed it. So I said, well, I'll just do the same thing for Uda, which I did, uh, classical and contemporary piece. And uh, so I was uh, sitting there waiting to go in for my appointment at HB Studios, which was in the West Village. And there was a woman sitting next to me reading the backstage, which I'd never seen before. Mm. And she had the page open to Negro Ensemble Company announces auditions for resident company. And I said, oh, my God, the Negro Ensemble Company. They're having auditions for the resident company. And uh, so I said, can I see that, you know, that she, yep. and she said, oh, she said, I'm going over there after this. She said, you want to walk over with me? And I said, yeah, thank you. So that's literally what happened is I auditioned for Uta Hagen and left that building and walked across the village to the East Village and was standing outside the Negro Ensemble Company at, um, you know, 2nd and uh, 8th Avenue. And there was a line like around the corner of people lined up waiting to audition. But the way I got into the building and up to the top of the stairs and the front of the line is there was a sign that said equity members seen immediately. Mm -hmm. And I was equity Uh, because in Chicago, uh, I had done a couple of voiceover commercials and joined AFTRA. And back in those days, if you were a member of one union, you could join the other unions for half price. And I said, well, you know, I probably would never do get a chance to do a, a professional stage play, an equity stage play, but I'm going to join anyway. And I also joined SAG. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I said, I'll never get to be in a movie, <laughs> but I'm going to join these unions anyway because I had the opportunity. So happenstance, I yes, was a yeah. member of equity that took me all the way up those stairs to the front of the line. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, believe me, I've I'm 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 not a member of Equity, and and I've spent a lot of time waiting to try to get in on an audition. So I, it's it was great that you were very it was very fortuitous that you had that uh, you had that ability to jump right to the front. Well, you say fortuitous, and I'm going to say everything that I tell you today about a door opening for me mm-hmm. is just like that. It's like, how in the world did you get a lucky break like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm interviewed by the person that is going to take you to the next step. And she looks at my resume, which I had, you know, created some, you know, it didn't have anything on it. Not really nothing professional. It just right. whatever little things I had done in Chicago. And... um one of the things I had done in that week that I had been there is I got myself an answering service called the Green Room because I needed to be able to hear back from Uta Hagen sure. yeah, whether, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, I could come back or not. So uh, I had this little resume and then the Green Room, that was my contact information and, um, you know, just had whatever I'd done in college and, you know, uh, in community theater, whatever. So the woman, you know, looking my material over. She says, well, uh, we're looking for people with more professional credits. Uh, So I would suggest maybe you try up at the Frank Silvera Writers Workshop, which was in Harlem. And I said, oh, okay, thank you. And I got up to leave and something made me turn back And I turned back around and I said to her, how do you know what I can do by looking at a piece of paper? (laughs) And it kind of took her off guard. She said, oh, so you think I should give you an... And I said, well, that's what I'm here for. Right. So uh, I guess the, you know, the gall, (laughs) the coldness of me saying that made her said, okay, be back tomorrow at uh, 2.15. Wow. So I came back the next day at 2.15 and found myself in front of Douglas Turner Ward. And I did the same two pieces for him that I had done for Uta Hagen. And, um, you know, I did my classical piece, um, Catherine from Henry VIII. Sir, I desire you do me right and justice and bestow your pity on me, for I am a most poor woman and a stranger born not of your dominion, having here no friend indifferent, no no more assurance of equal friendship and proceedings. Alas, sir, in what have I offended you? So I went from that (laughs) to niggers, niggers, niggers. I'm sick of niggers, ain't you? Wow. And he he fell off of his seat and was just bowled over with laughter. Yeah. And there were people peeking in. The woman that had given me the audition and some other people were peeking through the door, I guess, to see how I would do or if I would fall on my face or whatever. But I left there and... It was like I was on a cloud because I had the experience of auditioning for Douglas Turner Ward, the artistic director of the Negro Ensemble Company, who I had seen my senior year in high school. Right, right. Unbelievable. And and, and, yeah, and, 
it was. Yeah, it sounds like you did what you had come to do, that you, you know, you were very happy with the pieces. And obviously, it sounds like you were very comfortable. And also, it showed that you were an actor of some depth, you know, being able to combine, you know, figure out which pieces to combine and what to use and, and how to, you know, show your your range, you know. And then, of course, that's what I would imagine uh, artistic directors are looking for. It's like, okay, we need someone who not only can do the work, but is you know, is someone of depth and has some, you know, ideas and things. So, but, yeah. Well, it sounds- was, you know, it was an amazing experience because uh, uh, the next day I heard back from Uta Hagen that I had been accepted in her class. So wow. I hightailed it back to Chicago to pack for my 16 weeks with Uta Hagen. And when I got back, they were calling me from the Negro Ensemble Company, offering me a uh, a spot in the resident wow. acting company for the next nine months. So what was going to just be this 16-week experience of studying with Uta Hagen became something entirely different uh, right, all of right. a sudden. I'm a working actor. I did not know I was ready to be a working actor. And I always question that in myself. And I think that held me back a little bit at first because uh, I just didn't believe where I was or what I was doing. I knew I I was ready to study at another level, but I did not know I was ready to work. Got it. Uh, so it was uh, quite uh, quite an experience, and everything that uh, you know I learned about acting, I learned at the Negro Ensemble Company because they had some heavyweights there. And so did you did you end up doing the the sixteen weeks at HBO Studios, or did you just go right? No, into I the, didn't. I okay. wasn't able wow. to do the entire sixteen weeks, but I did wow. start her class, okay. and maybe seven weeks in. Uh, uh, Miss uh, Hagen asked me to give up my spot because she did not encourage uh, you to be working and studying at the same time. Got it. That was like one of her rules. Did you enjoy working, you know, at her studio and working with her? Do you feel like you took oh, a lot of tools? Well, I, I, yeah, I think the the lessons that. I learned uh, there have stayed with me um, my whole acting career, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the acting exercises, the moment before and all of that, uh, you know, I still am aware of that is, sure. you know, being alive before you walk on to the stage or before you open your mouth, finding that moment before has uh, stood me in good stead. And that's probably the only consistent thing that I have ever used is, is that. Mm. Um, But I remember the first time getting up, uh, well, the first couple of times getting up, um, you know, in her class, she would assign you uh, an, a scene partner and a scene. And um, the first time she stopped me, she says, I don't believe you. That was a little crushing because it's in front of a whole classroom. Full sure. Of yeah. 
Uh, and she says, okay. And she talked you through some things and you try again. And, uh, she said, we'll see better. We'll see next week. You bring it back next week. Uh, cause you be working on the same scene. Right. Over and over and over and over. Uh, but I think I'm, you know, happy that the first time I got up, she didn't say, oh, that was wonderful. That was terrific because it wouldn't have given me anywhere to go. Right. The fact yeah, that she stopped me cold in my tracks and said, I don't believe you. Mm. You're acting. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what does she mean by your acting? Right. And, uh, you know, I would start to discover what that really did mean, because I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, when people do talk about my work, they're so, you're just so natural. It just doesn't seem like you're acting at all, because I'm very conscious about that. Not pretending, but being. Right. Right. Well, and it it sounds like between you know, the classes at HP studios and then certainly, you know, all the productions and, and work you did with the Negro Ensemble company like that, that sounds like that really kind of cemented whatever advanced actor training you needed or, or were, you know, looking missing. for or yeah, missing. <laughs> I mean, it sounded like you were probably, you know, pretty good to get into both of those places, but, um, but they really probably, you know, locked in, you know, the, any, any, any final pieces, uh, you know, in terms of you moving forward as a professional? Well, I, I guess that would be, uh, you know, accurate. Did you, uh, well, did you say. see it as like, especially with the Nero Ensemble company that like, did you feel like you were still learning all the time or did you see oh, yourself yeah. as a peer? Okay. Yeah. No, I, I never saw myself as a peer because I had seen these people when I was a high school student. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's no wow, way yeah. I could consider myself <laughs> a peer right. in that group of actors. Uh, so, uh, you know, like I said, I always felt like I was a fraud and like I was holding my breath. In fact, that's what one of the actors says, you know, you're not breathing. <laughs> he said, you know, you got to breathe to do this. And he said, if you weren't supposed to be here, sweetheart, you wouldn't be here. Mm. Uh, so just forget about that piece of it. You're supposed right. to be here. Cause if you weren't, you wouldn't be right. Uh, and so that helped uh, a little bit. And because they were also nurturing, even though I was, uh, you know, I was 28 years old, so it wasn't like I was an ingenue that just got off the bus. I was a 28-year-old married woman with a child. Right, yeah. Uh, so, you know, there was that. You know, I brought that that energy with me that I was already grown, but I, that I was starting from the beginning, but I was a late bloomer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is where I bloomed. Yeah, very cool. And well, and I know a, a few years after that, or you know, in, in the early '80s, you started doing some film and TV. It looks like in in New York. And so, how did you how did you get started with all that? Did you did you get an agent 
because of your work with the Nero Ensemble Company, or or did, how did how did those auditions come well, about? Well, the, the um, I didn't do too much in terms of uh, I don't, I think I only did theater in uh, New York. There may have been one or two things, one or two things that I did in New York, but basically theater was my core business. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and remained so uh, until I came out. Uh, to California in right. 1990 or 91. After I won the Tony, I came out right. to California. But be prior to that, um, when I was first working at the Negro Ensemble Company, we did uh, all new plays, and I was, you know, uh, cast in every single production of everything that was done in season one and season two that I was there. And in season two, which would have been in 19, the end of 1978, beginning of 1979, I did a play called Home, which was a new play, which became a very big hit at the Negro Ensemble Company. And, um, the producers, Liz McCann and Nell Nugent, who were producing Elephant Man and Mornings at Seven, mm. wanted to take our show home to Broadway. So they came to me, the producers, and said, um, it's time for you to negotiate your contract, Scotty, and you're going to need an agent to do that. And I didn't have one. And I said, well, I could just do it myself. She said, no, 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 no. You need an agent. You need an agent. So I didn't know anything about getting an agent because I had landed where I landed by the grace of God. It had nothing to do sure, with an yeah, agent. Yeah. And uh, so at the time, there was a little guide called the Ross Reports. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah remember that and they'd have oh, yeah. the listing of all the agents and their right. addresses and it yep. was alphabetical order so i started at the beginning i called abrams i said i have a uh, uh, i'm going to broadway i need an agent to negotiate my contract click 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 <laughs> i got click 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 until i reached arcara bauman and hiller and they said come right over hmm and they became my agent and uh, negotiated my contract. And I stayed with them until I came out to uh, California after winning the Tony. So that's how I got my agent by looking <laughs> through, uh, you know. Well, and, and of book. course, yeah. Well, of course, what most actors don't have is, you know, you're not bringing them money going like, hey, if you negotiate this, you'll. Uh, I would imagine there was a percentage in it for them. So uh, most oh, actors. Of course. Yeah, most actors sadly don't don't have projects to to bring to agents uh, when they're looking for one. So that was also a good good position to be in. Um, well, I, I remember seeing it looked like there was a maybe a TV movie or something called Without a Trace that you did. Yes. And I don't know if that film that film in New York while you were yes, there. It okay, did. So do, that do you, is uh, that was the. I don't know if you are old enough to remember the story of Eton Potts. The little boy in New York who was went no, missing, and uh, yeah, he just disappeared without a trace one day. Right, and uh, the city was alive with that story for wow. years because they wow. never found him. So that was the story, 
And in this uh, TV movie, it, that was, I guess that might have been the first thing that I got on camera with right, that. Yeah. The star of the movie, and this is another serendipitous uh, event here, the star of the movie was Kate Nelligan. Okay. She played the mother of Eton Potts. And I played the mother of a, a missing child as well. And we were doing to do the scene in the movie was we were to do a, a talk show to talk about our uh, missing children. So we're both in the makeup trailer mm-hmm. getting made up for like this morning TV show when the police come in to tell me that they found my little girl uh, dead. Oh, geez. So wow. that was the scene, and that was, you know, uh, it, a big deal for me because uh, it was my first thing, and because I was acting with Kate uh, Nelligan, right? Who I thought was just like oh, such a wonderful um, actress. And what's ironic about that is the year that I won my Tony Award, that's who I was up against, who was favored to win that year. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, that actress. And then there were the other actresses from your show. That was uh-huh, the whole correct. category. Kate Nelligan was, was uh, <laughs> oh, geez, favored wow. to win that year. Oh, wow. Um, that's fascinating. Well, so did you... Did you feel, I mean, you said that was your first gig, and I, and I assume your agent at that time, that, that agency helped you get the audition. Um, was that, is that correct, that they, they were the ones who got uh, you the Yeah, I guess, yeah, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and did you feel, like, did you feel ready acting on camera, or did it feel any different for you? Or no, you it just... didn't feel any different. I felt nervous because I had always been uh, told and led to believe that uh, stage acting was a very different uh, from right. film acting and uh you know uh that there were things that you had to guard against uh you know uh if you were a stage actor right but the part of it that made me the most nervous was that I was in the scene with Kate Nelligan <laughs> you know because I admired her sure. acting so much yeah. Um, well, you know, looking at it, kind of the next thing on my my list that I wanted to cover, because I know it was around this time, was uh, when you had the back injury, which seems to be probably a little bit of a story. I and mean, there's a lot, you know, I want to, because I know you're also out for a couple of years, you know, recovering. Um, so, I, again, I don't want that to be anything that I kind of rush and, and try to cram into right now. So, we can just kind of pick up around this point. I mean, if there's anything else you wanted to share about working on without a trace um, or, or something connected to that, no, that's no, fine. Because that was a, uh, a, a relatively, um, you know, brief experience, uh, mm-hmm. except that uh, that came with a, uh, Judd Hurst was also in that. He right, was one yeah. of the, uh, the stars of that. And there were a number of, you know, lots, lot, lots of, uh, when they shoot a, a film in New York, you see every, not every, but you see a number of New York actors right? Uh, yes. on all levels. It's just like a, a wonderful kind of love letter when they 
would shoot something in New York because the New York actors would get an opportunity to get a shot at, you know, some work on film. And that was not the case uh, at that time. Everything was being shot out here, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so very few things were shot in New York. So that was like uh, a wonderful experience uh, to go to the premiere of that. You know, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. was a big event, and that was the first time I'd ever had that experience. Oh, cool. uh, yeah, so those kinds of things. And also, you know, the uh, being uh, 30 years old, having your Broadway debut when I debuted, right. uh, you know, in home, that was, uh, you know, like a really terrific uh, experience. And, you know, a did night you f- that you'll never forget, you know. Right. And, and d- did you feel like at the time you were very um, kind of aware or present to, you know, things that seemed to be moving in the right direction? Um, I mean, oh, no, could- I never thought about anything like that. Uh, I okay. never had a thought in my head of... Uh, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to make my mark. I'm going to be a, a, a star. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. The things that you hear people talk about, mm-hmm. that was never that conversation for me. My conversation with myself going to New York is, I want to go to New York and audition for Uta Hagen. It was that singular. Wow. There was no other thought in my head about anything. And it was just serendipitous that, you know, I was made aware that the Negro Ensemble Company was having auditions and that became the next thing. Like tomorrow, I have to go in that building and audition for Douglas Turner Award. No thought in my head, if I get this, I'll be able to parlay this into this or that or whatever. That was never anything that ever, ever, ever occurred to me. Uh, Never a dream that I could point to. Uh, And maybe that's why I never got further than I actually got, because I never dreamed of getting further than I am. It's always been immediate. Well, so is, is the focus or, you know, is your focus more just on the current work, whatever that is, whether it's an audition, whatever whether it's a play? I'm, I'm breathing today. It's like, what is, what is, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. What, no, I hear you. And, and I'm very serious when I say that, um, you can't make a dream happen if you don't have a dream and I never had one. Mm. So in terms of me saying all my dreams came true or I came close to having a dream come true, that is not something I can say because I never dreamed it. Right. Everything has just happened to me. Right. Right. You know, I didn't, say, you know, well, if I get an agent, I'll be able to go out on, um, you know, movie auditions or TV auditions or any that never, never occurred to me, 
None of that has ever occurred to me. And uh, I'm not proud to be saying uh, maybe the reason I never got to the tippy top is because, uh, you know, I never dreamed of doing it. But, uh, you know, the journey of a, a thousand miles begins with one step. But if you don't even know the direction you're going in, the step you're taking may be taking you away from whatever, you know, your ultimate mission or your ultimate destiny is. And that's what I've always believed is that at any moment, if you turn left or you turn right, you are meeting your destiny. And I'm not planning it. I'm not, um, you know, working towards it. I'm just in the moment. But because I'm only in the moment, have not done anything to move myself forward. You know, I've never had a team. I've, you know, never had the PR person. I've never done any of that. I didn't know to do it. And I wouldn't have had an agent if I wasn't forced into that. Sure, sure. So it's like, if you don't know those things, and and I don't know if they even teach this in in, uh, schools now, but you went to USC, right? Right, yeah. So do they teach you the business of the business? At at the time I went, there was was nothing. Um, I don't even know, I don't even know if it was a class that I didn't take, I... You know, the, I I just don't think there were any classes about the business of being an actor, which there really is. I mean, especially in cities like L.A. and New York and even, you know, Chicago. I mean, you know, lots of other places. But, yeah, it's um, it is sorely lacking. And I think that's the great thing about online now is you're seeing different, whether it's, you know, websites or blogs or whatever, or even podcasts, um you know, trying to fill that gap for actors, because there are lots of actors, very talented actors, who get out there and go, wait a second, I don't know the first thing about the business of this. And, um, you know, they're they're trying to, you know, maybe create a resource for the next generation of actors. Which is uh, terrific, and it's much needed, because uh, not that I regret, uh, you know, anything that has or has not happened for me, uh, but I wonder, sometimes I wonder what might have happened right. if I had more information. Sure. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, and, you know, the the irony to me, at least, is, you know, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if you hadn't had, you know, quite an accomplished career. And so it's, yeah, I mean, there's always the, you know, could 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 you have gotten to the you know the A list uh, of Hollywood and maybe but you know the fact is you you know you have had a pretty amazing career and it's certainly not over um, and uh, and and also I think it's a testament to that you were meeting the moment um, at least that's that's my perception that you know you you know knew how to be a hard worker and knew how to you know do whatever it was and open to learning more so that you know you were you were present to whatever was happening, but you were also meeting it with, you know, the level of work you were doing. Well, you know what? I I would also describe myself as being lazy. 
<laughs> okay. All right. Well, yeah, I'm a, that blows I'm my a, theory I'm out a, of water. Well, yeah. Uh-huh. And, and I think I, I better do that. I think I better keep it real and just let you know okay. that how, how I grade myself is lazy. Well, all right. And the re- okay. I think the reason I'm lazy is because all of that accomplishment that you talk about, it came easy for me. It came like a gift from God, which is the easiest way mm-hmm. to get anything in your life, to just be at not the right place, but the God place at the God time. Mm, I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be at the God place at the God time. And that's how it has happened for me. So because it happened like that, it's just like I've always just considered that that's the way it will continue to happen. And to a certain extent, it does. But if you want more to happen, you do have to put the work in. You do have to get behind yourself and push. Hey guys, Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss anything ahead. Be sure to visit WorkingActorsJourney.com for additional info and links for items mentioned in today's episode, as well as all the episodes. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. All the links are on our site and in the episode notes. Become a premium member and enjoy additional benefits and perks of the show starting at just $2 per month. Head over to WorkingActorsJourney.com slash premium to join the Working Actors community. Thanks again to today's guest and to everyone that makes these episodes possible. And a special thanks to you for listening. I'm Nathan Agin, and enjoy the journey. Oh, 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 o